0: I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel in the 36th chapter, reading verses 21, 22, and 23, verses 21 to 23 in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. We continue, in other words, our consideration of this statement here in this book of the prophet Ezekiel in this 36th chapter, which began at the 16th verse and which goes on, to the end of the chapter. It's a great word addressed by God to these children of Israel in the bondage and the captivity of Babylon. We must never forget the setting. This prophet Ezekiel was one of the prophets of the captivity so-called when he appeared on the scene The children of Israel were no longer in their own country. Alas, they were no longer in the land of Canaan, no longer in Jerusalem. They were in a strange land, the land of Babylon, whether they'd been carried as captives and as slaves by the Chaldeans who had conquered their country and all their armies and had destroyed their city. Well, there they are, seated by the waters of Babylon, feeling utterly hopeless and disconsolate. And God sent this man, this servant of his, the prophet Ezekiel, to speak to them. And what we have in this great uh, paragraph, in this great statement, is God's message to the children of Israel in such a situation. Now, I'm calling attention to it, not only that we may know what God said to the children of Israel of old, but rather that we may know what God is saying to mankind this evening. It's still the same message. You see, the first thing that God said, that that Ezekiel said to these children of Israel was this, moreover, he said, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, it's his word. And that is the point at which we must always start. The gospel is the word of God to men. And because it is the word of God, of course, it's an unchanging and an unchangeable word. Now, we emphasized that on the first evening because if we are not clear about that, of course, we are not going to be clear about anything. I'm not standing here this evening to give my own ideas, my own opinions, about life and as to how it should be lived. Uh, I don't attach such significance to my own opinions. Uh, I'm a man who has found life baffling and difficult. I'm a man who's found himself to be a failure. And I'm standing in this pulpit, not because I think I've got a great brain or a great mind or wonderful ideas. I'm here as a sinner saved by the grace of God, as one who in his helplessness suddenly found all he needed in this book, which we call the Bible, which is the authoritative word of God to men in his predicament and in his trouble. Very well, I say, this is God's word. And because God doesn't change, his word doesn't change. And because men doesn't change, the need of mankind this evening is exactly what it was when Ezekiel spoke to his fellow countrymen by the waters of Babylon so long ago. Very well. Here is the message. In this one section of scripture, we have the complete message. It's a whole message. As we've been seeing, it's got parts, component parts, but they're all parts of a whole. And again, I'm repeating this for this reason. This gospel has to be accepted either as it is or not at all. Now you may say that's very dogmatic. It is dogmatic. And I'm dogmatic because it isn't my word again, but because it's God's. There is nothing I know of that is so inconsistent and so illogical as to take parts and accept the rest. The gospel all hangs together. And it's every part is important, and is essential. Very well. What have we seen? We've seen this. The first thing God always tells us when we're in trouble is this. That we've got to realize exactly why we're in trouble. Ah, you say, but I don't want that. I just want relief. Again, I say the patient doesn't dictate. It's the physician who's in charge. And what you have to do is to listen to what's being said. That's, That's the message of God's word. Whether we like it or not, we shall never know God's salvation until we've accepted what he tells us about the cause of our troubles. In other words, it starts with the doctrine of sin. We are what we are because we foolishly have sinned against God. Now that is the first thing, and we've already considered it. There is this tremendous exposition here of what sin is in and of itself, and especially what it is in the sight of God. That's the first thing. Then, having started with that, we come on to the second. The second is the matter that we were considering last Sunday evening, that God hates sin, and that God punishes sin, and that God will punish sin. Again, I say, whether we like it or not, it's just a fact. Now, those who are familiar with the epistle to the Romans will know that there it's made quite unmistakable in this form. Paul is preaching the gospel. And he says that he's not ashamed of it. He rejoices in it. Why? Well, he says, because therein a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then he goes on to say this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed as much as the love of God. And to talk about the love of God and never to mention the wrath, therefore, is to deny revelation. We take them both or we take neither. These things cannot be separated. Very well, we've seen that God had not only said that he would punish the sin of his people if they forsook him, but he did punish them. He told them when he took them into Canaan that if they didn't keep his laws, he'd throw them out of Canaan. And here they have been thrown out. He's done the very thing he said he'd do. And you know, my friends, God is still saying the same He is still telling this world that if it persists in ignoring him and flouting his laws and desecrating his sanctities, he will punish it. And I make bold to suggest to you this evening that he is punishing it. You explain to me the two wars we've had in this century on any other terms. This is a part of God's punishment of men. He allows men to reap the consequences of his own folly. That's one of God's ways of punishing sin. The Bible teaches that. So God is punishing sin before our eyes today. All the troubles and the tribulations of this century are a part of God's punishment of sin. He said he'd do it. He is doing it. Yes, but it doesn't all end with this life and this world. There will be a final judgment. And God will punish all who die rebellious against him. Without end. He will make the punishment fit the crime. The punishment is always condign. He said so himself. You remember how he puts it in these words. I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed among the countries. According to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. It is condign punishment, and it always will be condign punishment. Very well. Now then, there is the preliminary message to the children of Israel, You are where you are and you're suffering as you are because you have profaned my holy name before these heathen, says the Lord to the children of Israel. And as I say, he is saying the same thing to this modern generation. He's saying it to every one of us. Is that all? Is there no hope then? Have I nothing to say but a message of doom and disaster? Is there nothing to add? My text this evening has already answered that question. Did you notice how this new division starts? After all this pronouncement of woe and of judgment and of calamity, then suddenly, but I had pity For mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went, therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord. It hasn't finished. The message still goes on. Is there no hope, you ask? I answer, there is. There is eternal hope. There is the most wondrous hope of all. And here it's all introduced as it always is by this wonderful little word, this blessed word, but. God's but.
1: The thing that God adds,
0: and that's the whole gospel. Now this is the word that always introduces the gospel. Let's look at it. Here, as I hope to show you, we are given all the details of what the gospel does to those who believe it. But before we come to the details, a general statement is made about it. And I want to call your attention tonight to the general statement. And again, you see, we must follow the scriptural order. Oh, I know we'd like to rush on to the details, wouldn't we? We'd like to talk about being sprinkled with clean water and all the blessings that come. But God says a number of things before he comes to that. And I'm calling attention to them because it is it is clear, it is certain that if we don't accept these preliminary general statements, we shall never experience the detailed blessings. I have no question but that most people go wrong with regard to this great and glorious salvation because it is their whole attitude to it that is wrong. It isn't the details. It's the whole attitude. It's the approach. It's the conception. There are so many false ideas with regard to this gospel. People do seem to think of it as if it were but one of the cults or but one of the philosophies. And that they can come and consider it. They approach it in this kind of way. They say, well, now then, if it can help me, if it's got something to give me, and I'm satisfied, well, then, I'll take it up. That's the approach. That's the attitude. Now, I'll show you this evening how fatal that attitude is. And that as long as that is our attitude, we shall never know it. We shall never experience it. The gospel has to be accepted on its own terms, in its own way. I'm not laying this down. It's God who said it. Go and tell those children of Israel, he said to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel repeated the words. And I'm simply here to act as a kind of gramophone. I'm just repeating the words. Well, now then, what are these general statements? Well, let me try and classify them. Here's the first. Salvation is altogether in spite of us. I start with it because we must start with it. It's emphasized twice here. Here, you see, in verse 21, the gospel comes in. The way of salvation is open. But notice how God puts it. He says, I had pity for mine own holy name. But he repeats it still more strongly. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither he went. Salvation is in spite of us. And this, of course, must be the case in the light of what we have hitherto been considering. But we can take nothing for granted. The first thing that God tells us, as he told those children of Israel, is this. That we deserve nothing but punishment. That's the first statement. And again, I must emphasize it, if you don't agree with that, you will never know the blessings of the Christian salvation. Now, you see why the gospel is so different from these cults and other agencies that are offering people so much today. None of the cults tell you that. They tell you nothing about sin, they don't believe in it. Take, for instance, a thing like Christian science which offers to solve all your problems and to make you tremendously happy. It never tells you that you deserve nothing but punishment. Psychology doesn't tell you that. They all start by praising you and they're out to help you and to give you something. They never, first of all, as it were, knock you down before they pick you up. But the gospel does. Do you remember that old man, Simeon? That devout, holy, righteous man in Israel? who stood there with the infant Jesus Christ in his arms, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The man who said, Now let us know thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen the salvation of God. But you remember the other thing he said? He looked at the infant Jesus and he said, This child is set for the fall and for the rising again of many in Israel. What a true prophecy it was. It's always true. The only people who've ever enjoyed the blessings of God in Christ and who've rejoiced in Christian salvation have always been those who have realized and who've admitted and confessed that they deserve nothing but punishment and damnation. I say this is obvious in view of what we've already seen. We've already considered what sin is. It's an abomination in the sight of God. It's to God like a removed woman. It's hateful, it's insulting, it's foul, it's ugly, it's vile. And we're all guilty of sin. And the moment we realize we are guilty of sin, we realize that we deserve nothing from God but punishment. Are you clear about that, my friend? Not for your sakes. I haven't done this. I'm not going to do this, says God, because you're so marvelous and so wonderful and because you deserve so much help. I'm doing it in spite of you. The children of Israel had turned their backs on him. They'd turned to other gods and had worshipped them. They'd ignored his laws and had lived like the other nations. And they deserved nothing but punishment. It's in spite of that, he's going to deliver them. And isn't this true of every one of us? What place has God had in your life, my friend? Are you living to the glory of God always? Is God central in your life? Do you start your day? By going down on your knees before him and acknowledging him and surrendering your life to him and worshipping and praising him and magnifying him. Are you doing so? Have you done so? Not to do so is terrible sin. Because I can assure you that at this moment in heaven all the glorified spirits are there doing that very thing. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They're prostrating themselves before him. They're glorying in him and magnifying his wonderful name. And God is to be praised, is to be worshipped, he's to be glorified. And not to do so is the very essence of sin. Where does he come in in your life? How often do you think of him? How often do you worship him? How often do you praise him? And what of your life? Is it controlled by God? Are you keeping the Ten Commandments, living the Sermon on the Mount, concerned only to praise God in your life and to bring men and women to him? Is that your life? If it isn't, you're dishonoring him. And that's terrible sin. That's what the children of Israel did. They just forgot him, ignored him, gave themselves to other things. That's what mankind is still doing. And that is why I say we deserve nothing but punishment. I mustn't keep you at this point, but this has been the confession of the best men that this world has ever known. They have freely confessed That they deserve nothing but punishment. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Listen to Charles Wesley. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. He'd got nothing to commend himself. Not a plea to offer. No excuse whatsoever. That's the sort of man who could say, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Well, let me put it the other way around. Can you repeat the second words? Can you say honestly, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Are you finding him like that? Do you say to him, Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick, lead the blind? Have you found in him all you need, sight, riches, healing of the mind? Yea, all I need in thee to find. Can you say that sort of thing? Do you know, my friend, if you can't, I'll tell you why. It's because you've never said, vile and full of sin I am. I am all unrighteousness. You can't separate these things. You can't know the blessings of Christ until you see your abject need. Oh, he said it himself, didn't he? Blessed is the fir- this is the first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven and nobody else's. It's no use. You can argue as much as you like. You can object. All I'm saying is this. If you want to know the blessing, if you want to know the salvation, the deliverance, you've got to accept this first postulate that if you're saved, it's not because of anything in you. It's in spite of you. And don't you see why I must insist upon this? It's only when you realize this you'll realize what a wonderful thing salvation is and how great is God's love ever to save us. But if you feel that you're rather a good fellow or a good person after all and that after all you haven't done certain things like some people have and you've done a tremendous lot of good and you indeed are a wonderful person, Of course, if you feel like that and feel you've got a right to it and a claim to it, and you come along and say, well, I'm doing fairly well, but I'm not perfect. Can Christ help me a bit? I need a little bit of assistance. If that's your attitude, you'll never think very wonderfully of him. You'll never praise him as the saints have done. You'll never say, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. No, no. He'll just be a bit of an assistant who's given you a little bit of help here and there and you won't be able to sing these hymns honestly. No, no. Salvation is in spite of us. Not for your sakes. I had pity on mine own holy name which you have profaned. It's not only in spite of our sin but let's understand that salvation is always in spite of our helplessness and our hopelessness also. We not, only do, we not only do not deserve salvation, we literally can do nothing at all about our salvation. Ah, this is worse, isn't it? But it's the gospel message, we are helpless. The children of Israel were in captivity. They'd been conquered, their city had been destroyed, their armies had been decimated, uh, all their armaments and arms had been taken from them, and they were literally slaves in Babylon, a long way off from their own land. And of course they were surrounded by guards and soldiers. They couldn't move. It would be madness to try and plot a resurrection, uh, uh, some sort of insurrection. They couldn't possibly do it. And they knew it. They just sat down helpless by the waters of Babylon and commiserated with one another and bemoaned their own fate and their own folly that had led to it. They were incapable of action. They could do nothing at all. Completely helpless. In bondage and in captivity. And the case of every one of us in this life and in this world is precisely that. It's not only true to say that there is none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is equally true to say that we are all born dead in trespasses and in sins. Dead. Lord, I was dead. I could not move my lifeless soul to come to Thee. It's as bad as that. Now, here it is. Here it is historically. The children of Israel were literally helpless and hopeless, incapable in bondage, in serfdom in the captivity of the enemy, and they couldn't get out of it. But the whole message of the gospel is to say that what they couldn't do, God was going to do. In spite of them, in every single respect. Very well, my friend, let me sum it up by putting it like this. Salvation is not due to anything in us at all. And as long as we feel we have any rights or any claims, as long as we are still uh, entering in our complaints against God or anything he has done to us or in us or about us, as long as we are in any way standing on our feet and looking at God and postulating We'll remain where we are, in captivity and under the wrath of God. And again, I must add it, if you don't accept that and agree with that, well then, all I'm going to say from now on has nothing to do with you at all. You'll never know it. You won't experience it until you're in that position. But when you awaken to your poverty, your penury, your bondage, your slavery, your serfdom, you but saw yourself as you are in the sight of God, as these people saw themselves. And then throw down your arms and fall to the ground before him and say, I agree. I've got nothing to say at all. I've no defense, I've no plea, I've no claim. Then, you can begin to listen to what I'm going to say. The first principle was then that it is all in spite of us. Well, the second principle must obviously be this. It is all of God. I hope you like the logic of this gospel. You see, you clear off the rubbish first. Then you begin to build. You can't build, you see, while the rubble is still on the site. Get rid of it. You want your laborers first to take the rubbish away. Then you've cleared your site, and you can begin to build. It's in spite of us, yes, but it's all of God. Oh, this I! There are the children of Israel, but I have pity. God speaking. Go and tell the children of Israel, thus saith the Lord. Salvation is entirely God's. You see, it's his thought even. His purpose. His plan. What I'm told here is not that the children of Israel uh, gathered a public meeting and said, Well, now, what can we do? We are absolutely helpless, of course, but can we somehow send a deputation? Can we somehow ask God to do it? Nothing of the sort. They had given up hope completely. They were thinking nothing. They saw their sin. There was no excuse. There they are in utter helplessness. No, no. It was God who thought, I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned. It's God who began to think, and it's God who planned, and it's God who said, I'm going to do this and that. And You know, that's the whole message of the Bible. The whole message of this great revelation is that God, the eternal everlasting God, has planned the way to deliver men. It's God who thought about it. It's God who initiated it. It's God who worked it out as a scheme. The whole thing comes from God. Do you mean to tell me that it was as the result of a deputation of men going to God in a a prayer meeting and asking him to send down his son that God sent his son? Rubbish nonsense. They'd never have thought of it. They'd never have heard the impertinence to suggest it. No, no. It's entirely God's thought. And of course it's because people don't start at this point. They don't realize the greatness and the glory of this salvation. They think of God as someone sitting passively in the heaven who when we go to him and ask for things passively says yes. We are the active ones and God just says all right and grants us our request. Do you know my friend, nobody would ever have prayed if it were like that. It's God who starts, it's God who moves, it's God's thought altogether, it's everything from God. And that is why he and he alone must be praised. And glorified forever and ever. But he doesn't stop at thinking. He doesn't stop at purposing. It's God who acts. I will take you from among the heathen. And gather you out of all countries. And I will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean. It's God doing everything. And it is God who does everything in this Christian salvation. course with the cults it's what you do you repeat the phrases every day and in every way i am getting better and better you repeat these cliches and you persuade yourself and you feel better oh i grant you there's a great deal in psychology but it isn't the gospel here it's god and not men always did you notice how the Apostle Paul put it in that scripture we read at the beginning? We are ambassadors for Christ. That's all. We've been given the message. This isn't our own message. We are representing the King. And what has he told us to say? The message to wit. That God was in Christ, through Christ, by means of Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. It's God who's doing it. And, of course, that's the whole message of the Bible, isn't it? Here, you see, it was God who brought these children of Israel, a remnant of them, back to their own city of Jerusalem. But God's been doing that from the beginning. You see, go back again to that third of Genesis that's so vital, because you've got the whole story there, in a sense. There's men, Adam and Eve, hiding behind the trees. They've sinned against God and they know it and they're unhappy. And they hear his voice and they don't know what to do. And there they would have been left in misery. But God came down. Visited them, spoke to them, gave the message of hope to them. It's God. God acting. And the whole story goes on. How he picked out a man called Abram, turned him into a nation. How he took them down to Egypt, brought them back out of Egypt in spite of their captors. God, the children of Israel, would never have got out of Egypt but for God. It's God alone who can divide the Red Sea and smash the chariots and the hosts of Pharaoh. It's God alone who can divide Jordan and destroy enemies. It's God, the children of Israel, just like dupes and fools, were misunderstanding and complaining. It's God who took hold of them and led them out. And the whole of the remainder of the story of the Old Testament is just a variant on that one theme. These foolish people forgetting him, turning away. Oh, how often would they have been destroyed and finished by enemies. They might have finished themselves even in their sin. But God goes after them and here he's again going after them. It's the whole story of the Old Testament. But what am I talking of? If it's the story of the Old Testament, how much more is it the story of the new? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. Again, there was no deputation. Again, it wasn't the result of frantic prayer and God replying. The passive God who listens to us, not at all. He'd almost been forgotten. But God, in his own time, acted, sent his son, gave him the task, enabled him to carry it out. Though it meant his death, God raised him again from the dead. Oh, how Paul puts this in preaching at Antioch in Pisidia. There they killed him, took him down, buried his body, but God raised him from the dead, he says, and it's always the same. Had you realized, my friend, that this is always only the activity of God? Hadn't you perhaps thought that you made yourself a Christian by living a good life? By being better than other people? That you could please God and satisfy him. And so deliver yourself and obtain salvation. Am I showing you? Have you seen it? Is it clear that this is altogether God's action? And that salvation must be accepted as a free gift. By those who realize that they've got nothing at all. That they're utter paupers. Helpless, hopeless. But that God has done all and gives it to them freely of His grace and of His mercy. That's the second principle. Let me say just a word about the third. The primary design of this gospel. And what is that? What is the primary design of the gospel? I emphasize the word primary because it isn't the only design, but it is the primary. And tonight we are dealing with preliminaries, we are dealing with foundations, with generalities, before we come to the specific particulars. The primary design, and oh, if you don't believe this again, you'll never know the particulars. What is the primary design of the gospel? I wonder what your answers would be if I asked you one by one, what is the primary purpose of Christian salvation? Well, do you know what God himself says? It's this. The primary design of this salvation is to vindicate the character of God. Dear me, says someone, oh, I thought it was to help me. I thought it was to give me a friend and to make me feel very happy and to give me a thrilling experience. Oh, I thought it was all for me. I always started by thinking about myself. Well, you'd better change your method. It'll do unspeakable things for you. But its primary design is to vindicate the character of God. Listen. There they are, the children of Israel in captivity, and the heathen are laughing and are joking. They say, these are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of the land. They talked about their Jehovah. They said he was all-powerful, that he was the only God, and that he was holy and righteous and just. But look at them. Nonsense rubbish. You've profaned my name amongst the nations, says God to these children of Israel. And why doesn't he leave them there? And why doesn't he forget all about them? And why doesn't he take hold of somebody else? Here's the answer. I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord... I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen whither he went. And I will sanctify my great name, which you have profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, thus saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. Why salvation? that God may vindicate his own name and may establish his own character. It's just another way of saying that this great and glorious salvation shows forth the glory of God. have you noticed as you've read your four Gospels that the Lord Jesus Christ always said that He said, I have not come to glorify my own name, but the name of him that sent me. The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself. And then in his last high priestly prayer, he turned to his father and he said, Father, I have glorified thy name on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. The Lord Jesus Christ everywhere says that he's come not to seek his own honor, but the honor of him that has sent me. For the glory of God, he came because of that, that men might be brought to glorify and to praise and to worship God. And that is always the primary reason for salvation. It's always the primary motive. God says here to the children of Israel, I'm going to bring you back in order that I can establish my own name. These heathen people are laughing at me. I'm going to show them who I am and what I am, and I'm going to do it through you. You're their captives now, and they say that their God is stronger than I am. Very well, I'll show them. I'll show them where their God bell comes in. I'll smash him, and I'll bring you out. I'll take you back. I will be sanctified in you before their very eyes. And he did it. Out of the hopelessness and the helplessness of Babylon, he brought back a remnant to Jerusalem. And the city was rebuilt. And the temple was reestablished. And God's name was again praised and glorified. And later into that temple came the very Son of God. Oh yes, he did it there. But that is as nothing compared with how he does it in the gospel. Oh, the glory of this gospel is that it shows forth the praises of God, that it shows forth the attributes of the eternal. And unless we see the gospel doing this, we haven't seen it. We persuaded ourselves that we are Christians. We've had some psychological experience. We've believed some cult or some psychology. Unless your view of the gospel makes you glorify God, it isn't the Christian faith. This gospel shows forth the power of God. He can defeat Babylon and he did. Why was Jesus Christ sent into the world? Well, this, according to John in his first epistle, is the answer. For this cause the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. This is Christian salvation. We all by birth, by nature, are... The slaves of Satan. He's got us in his grip. Man sinned. And his whole posterity has been under the dominion of the devil and of Satan. And Satan believes he's stronger than God. What is God doing in salvation? Just showing Satan his size. He snatches men out of his hands. He defeats him. Christ defeated him in the wilderness. Forty days and forty nights. In the garden on the cross. He put him to an open shame. Triumphing over them. And salvation means, you know, primarily not a nice feeling or anything else. It means that you're taken out of the hands of the devil. The whole world is in the hands of the devil. Men and women tonight, by the million, are in the hands of the devil. That's why they're spending their nights eating, drinking, laughing, dancing, gambling, cursing, swearing, the whole infernal of modern life. It's because they're held by the devil captive. They're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. The the spirit that now dwelleth in the children of disobedience. And there they'll remain until God exerts his power and takes them out. And overcomes the strong man armed. And rescues and redeems and brings out of that death of sin into newness of life. That's what salvation means primarily. And every time a sinner becomes a saint, the power of God is vindicated. It's a power that can only be compared with the power that he exerted when he brought Christ again from the dead, says Paul in writing to the Ephesians, and how true that is. My friend, salvation is not a simple thing. It's not an easy thing. You and I can't do it. Our decision doesn't save us. It's the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, says this man of God again, the Apostle Paul. Why? For it is the power of God and the salvation to every one that believeth, and nothing less. Do you know it? Have you felt it? Have you seen your need of it? Have you known that in your helplessness nothing else can do it? But it also vindicates his holiness. He is a holy God. I will sanctify my name, he says. These heathen, you have profaned it and the heathen have profaned it. How does God vindicate his holiness? I'll tell you. He does it partly by punishing sin. The heathen thought that the children of Israel were in Babylon because God was weak. They didn't know that they were there because God is holy and was punishing them by sending them there. But it doesn't stop at that God vindicates his holiness in the salvation of every soul. How, you may ask? Well, I'll tell you. One of the primary purposes of salvation is to make us holy. Not primarily to make us happy, but to make us holy. Why did Christ die on the cross? Well, this is Paul's answer to Titus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and separate unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Why did Christ die? To save me from hell. Yes, thank God, but not only that. Not merely to save me from hell and give me a comfortable feeling and give me a temporary joy and happiness. No, no. He came to bring me to God, to separate me to God, to make me a holy man, to make me fit to be a child of God like my Father. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. The object of salvation is to separate a people for God and to separate a holy people. I will be sanctified in you before their eyes, said God to these people. And he says the same to us. God is going to prove through every soul that he saves that he is a holy God and that his people are like him and that his power of holiness is greater than the power of the devil. So that if we are not manifesting holiness... We are not confounding the enemy. We are not ridiculing his charge. We are not sanctifying God's name before their very eyes. Let's talk a little less, my friends, about happiness and about a thrill and about some wonderful experience. or oh, they all come, but let's put this first. It is as a holy people we vindicate God's holiness and his eternal name. And this salvation also vindicates his justice and his righteousness. It's the cross that does that. We are not forgiven simply because God is love and in his loving kindness says, all right, if you say you're sorry, I'll forgive you, no, no. God forgives in a way that vindicates his justice and his righteousness. And he does it on the cross. God smote his own son, his only begotten son. He struck him. He punished our sins in him. And there he vindicates his justice and his righteousness. It's shouting at us from the cross. Have you ever seen it there? The tragedy is today people look at the cross and sentimentalize and see nothing they say but love that Christ says to us, though you're crucifying me, I still love you and I still like you and I'll still forgive you. No, no, there's something infinitely bigger even than that. It is God saying that I am just as well as the justifier of the ungodly. It is God who is saying that my character is such that I can't forgive sin like that as easily as you think. I must punish it. I must deal with it. And I've done so in my son. So I forgive and yet remain just and righteous and holy. But of course, on top of all these things is this glorious, wondrous thing It is his love that leads him to do all this. It is his love that sent his only begotten son to die in that way and to bear our guilt and our sins and our punishment. There were the children of Israel in Babylon and they deserved nothing but what they were getting because of their madness because they'd polluted the land and the name of God in their arrogance, and they deserve nothing. But God moves and initiates an action and brings the remnant back. Why? Oh, because of his eternal love and mercy and pity and compassion. And my dear friend, you and I, deserve nothing but the torments of hell for our arrogant thoughts about God, for the things we've said about him, for our laughter at him, our bitterness in our hearts against him and all his laws we've broken. We deserve nothing but hell. And yet I stand in spite of that in this pulpit as a Christian preacher. Why? Well, because God's love is so great that he has done all I've been trying to tell you about in order that I might be forgiven and rescued and redeemed. It's all of God. It's to vindicate his character, and it does. And because of all this, it's absolutely certain it cannot fail. If God had not brought back those children of Israel, the nations would still laugh and his name wouldn't be vindicated. But he did bring them back. He will. And therefore, as certainly as we are in this building at this moment, those who belong to God in Christ will be saved, and no man shall ever pluck them out of the hand of God. And equally certainly those who don't will go to final perdition. My friend, I want to ask you simple questions before I close. Did you know these things? Did you know the truth about yourself? You are passing through this world but once, and you don't know how long you're going to be in it. And you've got to face that God. Don't try to understand these immensities which we've been discussing together. But all I ask of you is this. If you've had some faint glimmer of a conception of God tonight and have seen yourself even partially, hurry to prostrate yourself before him. Cry out for mercy and for forgiveness and compassion as you realize what you've been and what you've done. Leave yourself entirely in his hands but I'll promise you this if you truly confess and acknowledge your sin and cast yourself upon his mercy you will find that you belong to him that he will deliver you he will grant you this great and glorious salvation and then you'll be the first to say it's all of God it's none of me a debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing thou must say, it, and thou alone, say that to him, and you'll prove it, you'll experience it. Amen.